This is the True Prophet Podcast with your host, Dr. Sherry Fluellen. The True Prophet Podcast brings together Christian entrepreneurs to bring about true profit. What is true profit, you ask? It's the movement of Christian entrepreneurs that are driven to seek truth for their life and their business, not just what sounds good or is easy. We take absolute responsibility for the endless pursuit of true wisdom. We take the narrow road. We know we will be hated at some point, but we don't make excuses and we stick to what we know is true. We are entrepreneurs who are determined to honor God no matter how it looks to those around us. When we fail, because we always do, we know we are forgiven through Christ, which gives us the courage and strength to continue on. Through every test in our business and our life, our profit may be money, but we also know our biggest profit is our faith. For what profits a man if he gains a whole world but loses his soul? Because you are among the elite of entrepreneurs chosen by God to make an impact, your pursuit of true profit will change the world. Welcome. Dr. Charlie Self, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It is a true privilege to be able to talk with you. Um, I'm going to do a, a brief uh, introduction of you and then please fill in whatever gaps you feel like um, I missed because there are going to be a lot of gaps given your long career. Um, so first of all, would you prefer to be called Charlie, Dr. Self? What, what's your preference? Well, in my family, it's Reverend Doctor His Holiness, but uh, for, you, <laughs> for you, it'll just be Charlie. Charlie's okay. fine. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Charlie, you are an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God, and you have served multiple times as senior pastor, as associate pastors, and as interim pastors for almost 40 years. Um, you've been a senior advisor and on faculty at the Acton Institute for Religious Liberty, which is an amazing organization. Um, uh, you're a director um, of city development for the Made to Flourish Network, which is really interesting, and I think we'll get to hear more about that in our conversation. Um, you're also currently a professor of church history at the um, AGTS, or the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. That's in Springfield, Missouri, and you are teaching courses on apologetics, which is honestly one of my favorite topics, I think, because I'm, I feel like I'm so bad at it. It's just fascinating. <laughs> Um, church history, you do a lot of uh, mission history, leadership development and discipline. Um, you've had the privilege of being the first director of uh, the PhD in Bible theology degree at AGTS, which was actually the first Assemblies of God PhD in the field. Um, you've also been professors at a lot of other universities around the world, having taught over 50 courses. You've authored three books, um, The Divine Dance, the Power of Faithful Focus, which I think you co-authored, um, and then The Flourishing Churches and Communities, a Pentecostal primer on faith, work, and economics for spirit-empowered dis discipleship. That is a mouthful. <laughs> um, you've also co-authored, which I think is uh, really interesting, um, just in my own history, I've, I've worked on uh, developing um, assessments. Um, and so you've co-founded a one-of-a-kind, biblical, empirically verified um, whole life discipleship assessment. And it measures five dimensions and 40 outcomes. It's called the discipleship dynamics, which I think is 
really, really cool and a very unique um, feather, I guess, in your hat. Um, and then you've, you're on a variety of other boards and, and committees and you're just have a, you're, you're, you have a very full life in addition to having a wife of over 27 years who's an artist and you have three grown children. Um, so thank you so much for squeezing us <laughs> into, into your time. No, what, did I, I, what did I miss? No, I feel just the opposite. I want to thank you because you have as busy a schedule as I do serving people in your practice in podcasts like this. Uh, your family, your community. So you fitting me in is really true. I only have one little uh, adjustment to your profile. And uh, one is we've been married 39 years. Oh my gosh. So um, of course we were a child bride and groom as that works, but, uh, and uh, we are new grandparents, new grandparents in the last few years as well. So um, no, I have been so blessed. I, the way I like to describe it is with God's help, I've walked through doors and made friends. And um, my, one of my mentors was Dick Foth, and he said, you're never unemployed if you ask how you can serve. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So it's really been an honor, and uh, I'm particularly excited about your desire to empower entrepreneurs. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I'm thrilled and honored to have you on here. Um, it, as, an, as a Christian entrepreneur, and that's who we're serving here with the Profit First, um, our um, not Profit First. <laughs> that's a book that I love. Oh my gosh, I just totally spaced. Um, yeah, True Profit Podcast. So if you haven't read the book Profit First, it actually is really interesting, but that's a whole nother, whole nother segment. Um, true Profit Podcast about how we can, as Christian entrepreneurs, um, really get true profit, which is not just about financial profit, but about um, the profit that we do in the lives of others. Um, and so that's really why I brought you here today is to talk about from your experience, what as a Christian entrepreneur and those that are listening, what what are some of the biggest challenges that we face in the marketplace? Well, let me share the first handful, and then this will lead to a lot of interesting discussion. First of all, every single believer is a steward of the gifts, talents, opportunities, relationships that God gives them. Not every believer is a business or nonprofit entrepreneur in the kind of classical sense of initiating and uh, creating a sustainable enterprise. So I wanna, I wanna release some people who might be listening thinking everybody has to be an entrepreneur, but I don't wanna release anyone from <laughs> that sense of stewardship that we all have. But there's four or five things that come to mind immediately. First of all, Interestingly enough, within the church, there is a suspicion of the creation of wealth. There's a suspicion of engagement in enterprise. Um, church folks, pastors, nonprofit uh, leaders love donations, but they're sometimes suspicious of where that money comes from. And so we have to, first of all, get rid of the sacred secular dichotomy. Um, you know, work that God honors is all meaningful and moral activity apart from leisure and rest. So whether it's paid or unpaid, labor or leadership, God created us before the fall and after the return of Jesus, he created us to engage in meaningful work, meaningful activity. So we first have to help entrepreneurs feel good about the fact that God has designed these women and men to go and to steward God's creation and to actually bring new things into the world that weren't there before. And so 
uh, getting rid of that sacred secular dichotomy. I think, I think a second thing, uh, a little enemy at the door, as it were, um, is, is the, the danger of individualism as a philosophy as opposed to a kingdom of God perspective. Now, nothing wrong with the uniqueness of each individual, nothing wrong with personal responsibility, but any word that ends with ism can become a dangerous word. It can become its own power, its own philosophy. So we want to think of, the, of humankind, of men and women made in God's image. We want to think of them as those who are made to worship in and through all their activity. We don't want to reduce humankind to what one writer said was homo economicus. We don't want to make everything about money or wealth acquisition. But wealth creation, acquisition, and what I like to call value creation that is something we're all designed for. And just to su summarize this first little segment, I think a third area is you have to be ready to fail. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, and failure is not a, a failure. Failure at a business, failure at a venture, something not working out does, does not mean God has lifted his favor or, or you've sinned terribly. Um, the empirical realities around you, uh, the realities of the changing market and economy, um, a whole variety of things can lead to success or failure. So most entrepreneurs, interestingly enough, and you've studied this as much or more than I have, most will, will tell you they learned a lot from things not going well, and uh, they took that wisdom into their next venture. So I would want to say, uh, let's make sure we're honoring God and understand that we are doing his work in the world with our work. Secondly, let's be aware of kind of isolating ourselves or being too individualistic. And thirdly, don't be afraid uh, that, that if, if a venture doesn't work out. I had one venture capitalist, a really uh, high-level person. Uh, one, of his in, one of his investments didn't work out, and he personally wrote notes to 445 investors and said sometimes the risk doesn't work. Um, However, almost all of those folks were with him the next time when it did work. Uh, but he took the time to understand that risk is involved when you venture out in, in, in both. And, and when I say both profit and nonprofit, they are different segments, but they still have the same best practices as people lead in the world. Absolutely. Wow. You just, you just dropped a lot of information all at once. <laughs> I would love to unpack some of that a little bit more. Um, you know, maybe let's just start with kind of the last thing that you mentioned and talking about failure. Um, I think that's the Achilles heel for so many entrepreneurs is they have this fear of failure and it ends up, uh, it has a potential of crippling them. And, and, you know, they've got this vision of, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, I feel like God has given me the vision for, you know, something. And, but then they start getting in the weeds of, well, but what if it doesn't work? Or maybe, you know, the odds are against them or, or things, they get some major bumps in the road. How, how would you encourage an entrepreneur to, to handle that in their own mind when they're either convincing themselves they're going to fail or they feel like they're in the act of failing? Well, I would want them to distinguish the objective realities of the work they're doing. Um, when I say distinguish, not completely separate, but distinguish those objective realities from their own character and their own motives and their own sense of mission. Um, let me give an example from the scriptures. Um, one of my favorite letters is Second Corinthians. And Paul opens this letter after having written them three other times. 
um, we're, we're reading his mail to a very interesting community. And he says, man, we were really afraid. We were under pressure. We felt the sentence of death all around us. And, you know, God delivered us, but it was really hard. And then by chapter four, he's saying, you know, real life is perplexed, but not being in despair. It's cast down, but not abandoned. And so I think it's living with a sense of joyous lament every day. It's living with both the fallenness of our world and the imperfections of our thinking and the the vicissitudes of circumstance, and yet it's having a joy that God's character isn't going to change, his nature is stable, and that his Holy Spirit's available. Um, often, uh, sometimes we get the data wrong and we just miss the market. Sometimes we haven't listened to those whispers of the Holy Spirit uh, trying to lead us more precisely. We sort of ignore that and we kind of barrel ahead. And so I would just say a combination of be, be realistic about the, the economy that you're in. And secondly, listen to those whispers, listen to that wisdom from another sister or brother. Uh, don't, you know, don't despise that as you're going through this. Uh, one, one example, I had a laser technician in Silicon Valley tell me that God gave him a breakthrough in technology that was going to save lives in the medical field. But I asked him how much R&D went into that. He goes, oh, my goodness, three years of labor. And he said, we finally came to the end of all the research we knew. And the Lord, yeah, he was the leader, the Lord gave me a couple pieces. And when I shared those pieces, uh, other pieces fell into place from both Christians and non-Christians on the team. And we've created something that's going to save lives. But you notice God didn't circumvent the research. He didn't circumvent the hard work, and he even used others in the process. So that I hope that will be a little bit helpful. Um, I know this. When I listen to the whispers, I don't need as many megaphones of circumstance. Uh, <laughs> tell me what to do. I love that, 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 that um, visualization. Um, the current culture is so incredibly busy. Um, you know, I think what I've noticed that with the increase in social media, it's so easy to get caught up in the downtime of our life when we're off from work. And, you know, if, if I, if I can, if I'm disciplined enough to say, okay, you know, when I'm home in the evening, I'm going to be home, I'm not going to work, but I can easily, and I know other people, this, you know, we easily get sucked into all these other busyness. And when you're talking about listening to the wisdom of your brothers and sisters, but also I, you know, hear you say, listening to the whispers of God, what do you feel like needs to be present or how do our, how does our life need to be structured so that we can actually hear? Um, there's no one schedule or structure for everyone. You know, a new mom, they're praying in between naps and feedings. So I want to be really sensitive that there isn't a single program that fits all, but there's four or five principles that will help us uh, be able to hear. One is relearning Sabbath. Ooh. And you notice I'm not going, the New Testament reaffirms the goodness of this without assigning a legalistic way of practicing it. So, you know, relearning Sabbath, relearning. Secondly, um, taking time when we can uh, to listen. It may not be uh, an hour or two first thing in the morning if you're a busy parent, but it, there are always 10 minutes. There is always five minutes. There's always a moment where we can, um, you know, begin to still our hearts. 
as the psalmist said, like a weaned child, I've stilled my heart before the Lord. It's learning the spiritual disciplines on the go, as opposed to getting a rigid schedule. And um, I think a third thing that's going to help us um, is to reframe um, reframe our workday more productively. I had a friend who worked for Intel, famous chip maker in Silicon Valley, big sales guy. His team never worked more than 45 hours a week in spite of a Silicon Valley where people work 70 or 80 sometimes. It's because they learned how to use the day well and people got to their kids' games, got to church, got to what the other things that make up life because they used the day well. The average American worker wastes 20 or 30% of their time. And not deliberately, not, we're not talking about egregious sin, but just yeah. uh, unhelpful use of time. And fourthly, um, when it comes to listening, like anything else, it's learned by doing and checking in. I hope everyone has sisters and brothers in addition, if they're married, uh, the spouse is the first check-in, but if they're but married or single, I hope there's some sisters or brothers to say, you know, I sense the Lord saying this. What do you think? And it's consistent with the Bible, but boy, I I want to I want to discern what's best. Philippians chapter one, not be content with what's good. And I have found that when you when the only bad decisions are, I've made are ones I didn't check in with my wife or check in with other sisters and brothers about. That's a very good point. One of the one of the things that it seems like um, has become more prevalent in our culture is this perspective that um, I believe in God, I'm a Christian, I um, I have a personal faith with Christ, um, but I don't need to go to church. Um, and you know, and there's a lot of reasons behind that. Some of them, you know, I think it comes from a lot of place of woundedness that they've been hurt by the hypocrisy found and other things. But I'm, I'm hearing you say that that relationship with fellow Christians is critical. Yeah. I, um, it's often said by evangelists or by others, you know, come to Christ. You're not joining a church. This is you and God. And that's true insofar as we must each make that decision. But according to Scripture, we were not only baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptized into Christ and into his death and resurrection, we were baptized into the body of Christ. And that needs concrete expression. Uh, I, now, whether people use words like membership or partner, whatever words they may want to use, I'm not here to dictate ecclesial structures. Yeah. We need people in a place with a purpose for whatever season God's placed us in that geography. So, um, one of the things that I really think we have to end, and maybe you can be a, a prophetic voice in ending this, and that is that I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Yeah. Or, you know, or I love Jesus, but I don't love religion, and it, we conflate the two. It's one thing to say, yes, God's bride is beautiful and broken. The body needs a lot of work, but it's our family. Um, Kathy and I are part of family and extended family, and we have some broken family members. We have some pain points that are with us every day, but they don't cease to be family. Yeah. Um, and the good news is if you're loyal to God's people and loyal to a local church, you then actually have the authority to speak to those areas that need reform and need change. Uh, my wife and I experienced serious spiritual abuse at the hands of a bad leader years ago. And I went to a denominational official just for a little bit of help. I was ready to walk away, not from God, 
not even for ministry, but sort of walk away from my tribe at the time. Yeah. And there were, there were scandals going on and you name it. And he said, Charlie, um, I would, I'll be your friend regardless of what you decide. That was the first win he gave me that he wasn't measuring me by my, um, you know, status. But he said, if you believe in the basic doctrine and polity of what you're engaged in, and if you'll give it another try, if you'll stay loyal, not cultishly, but just critically loyal, someday you'll have voice and be able to share those areas that need to grow. And in 1987, wounded as we were, we stayed in. And I won't claim anything more than the honor of being able to teach seminarians, the honor of being able to encourage pastors, the honor of being able to do what I get to do. And, but it was that gentle wisdom, mm. that loyalty to the body matters. Yeah. Um, and I would say this to all listeners, um, that, that I know only 10 to 20% of folks today are in the same denomination as their parents. Um, so I'm not, I'm not being narrow in that, but I'm talking about in t- the integrity of the body of Christ, a Bible-believing local church. I'd love you to be in the Assemblies of God. I, I've decided to be that, uh, but I've served other, I still serve other churches. But the question is, are you a vital part of a community and going in with an inclination to serve as well as receive? Yeah. So as... One, one of the, the important pieces, I believe, as an entrepreneur, and I think this is across the board to anyone, but particularly those of us that are in a leadership position, um, I, I believe that we have the responsibility to continually be open to learning and feedback and an improvement. Um, and I'm wondering, through that experience where you intentionally decided, I'm going to stick in this very difficult, challenging experience what might, you know, what were a couple of the, the self-growth uh, opportunities or things that happened out of that experience? Three things that Kathy and I have sort of um, refined out of that. First of all is what real forgiveness is. And forgiveness is not excusing, but forgiveness is desiring for the very person that hurt you, desiring that God have mercy upon them, redeem them and bless them. So we don't excuse what was done to us, but we, we have genuinely forgiven. By the way, we had, we had another similar egregious moment years later, and I had the joy of offering communion to the very people that wounded us so deeply. And so forgiveness. The second thing is to um, really understand what a critical mind is versus a critical spirit. So... <laughs> we are to always retain our faculties and retain a biblically centered thinking, even while we are loyal and loving toward others. So let's say you and I are debating a, print, a, a, a policy issue. We might, I don't think we would, but we might disagree on something. That's different than me being critical of you as a person. Yeah. You know, I think, I think this policy or I think this strategy would be better. And you say, no, I think this is a better way. And we don't agree. So we put it in God's pending tray and we go out and have a cup of coffee and continue to serve the Lord. A critical mind is a good thing. Paul says in your thinking, be mature. And this is Matthew 7. Don't judge a person. Don't pass sentence on a person, but examine the fruit. Be a good fruit inspector. And I think a third thing we learned out of that is to really understand that 
um, institutional loyalty to us is a day at a time. We need to be loyal to God in the institution, but we need to understand that systems can change, personnel can change, and that we're always more than our job description. We're always more than our role at the moment. And, and, and by the way, as entrepreneurs, if we create companies or entities that employ people, we want them sold out to our mission, but we may have to make some hard calls about how many employees we can have. So to help them have a sense of self that's even beyond what we've created is important. You, you framed something really interesting, which I, I hadn't really heard before, um, but it just got my brain turning. And that's, that is the concept of the critical mind versus a critical spirit. Um, about two years ago in my own business, um, we had some disruption and some, some work hadn't got done that was supposed to get done. And there was just a waterfall effect on, on, on that in, in the entire practice. And what I noticed is that there was this shift in, um, you know, what you call there being a critical mind and there, you know, being discrete, critical or discrete things that happened wrong that needed to get fixed and conversations around that. And that, that there ended up being almost this infestation of a critical spirit where, that was just starting to to wreak havoc, um, and so the, so that is an interesting way of framing. I think the two separately, and to be very mindful about one not turning into the other. Well, I I I go into every church service saying, "Oh God, speak to me, change me." I also go into every gathering of believers, Lord, show me someone I can add value to or give to. But being being who I am, my brain doesn't turn off. So we have, we have a young, great young associate pastor, and he gave a great message on Sunday that I took notes on that I'm applying to my life, but I'm also evaluating his delivery, and I'm evaluating things, and mostly smiling just because my brain won't turn off, but I'm receiving, I'm, and I went up to him and said, 35 years ago, the principle you shared brought healing to my life, and it's brought healing again today. Thank you. And meanwhile, I could say that you said, um, 23 times. And, you know, in other words, it's, it's something we learn. Um, we never quite, you know, arrive there, but it really has been helpful to me. By the way, let me give a really practical thing about discipleship and business. We have got to be vocationally stable, but occupationally nimble in the 21st century. Half of the jobs we have today won't exist in 25 to 30 years. Now, the good news is the other half will be invented. The human race is not going to be unemployed. As long as Jesus is Lord of all domains and until Christ returns in glory, um, we're going to have work to do. Uh, so I don't, I mean, I, I know about AI and robotics. I'm concerned about all of that. But if we're creating people of character, and charism and competency, if we're building capacity in people, then they can be nimble enough to adjust to the changing jobs. Uh, can you repeat that phrase one more time? Because I think that was really important. Vocationally stable, occupationally nimble. And by vocation, it, I'm referring to our sense of calling. Uh, Oz Guinness would say the facets of the one great call I might say there's three or four facets of calling. So we're all called to Christ and his kingdom, to the great commission and the great commandment. If we're single or married at the given moment, that's a calling. 
comes with responsibilities and liberties. Then we all have good works we're supposed to walk in. Praise his holy name. And so there's that calling into the kind of specific areas of influence. However, where we work and how we occupy the day will change. I'm, I'm fulfilling my calling today, but I'm doing work that wasn't invented 10 years ago. Right. And, and so rather than when someone comes to me and they say, God wants me to be a truck driver, I don't pour water on that fire. I pour gasoline on that fire and say, I want you to be the greatest truck driver in the world. But I want your character and your competencies and your understanding of yourself to be even broader so that when we don't need truck drivers in 25 years, uh, you're ready to keep working. And so I don't want to to be too narrow on the words, but we overuse the word vocation sometimes. Yeah. um, And underutilize this um, Colossians 3.17 principle, whatever you do. Remember, Paul spoke to people who had no choice on their job, spouse, or geography. That's a hard pill to swallow in our society. Yeah, and by the way, I wouldn't want to. I'm grateful (laughs) we have have choices. But but when you realize that, you go, wow, that that meant the wife and mother, that meant the father and husband, that meant the slave and the master, that meant the blacksmith and the farmer. But you were born into and rarely moved out of what for 90%, 95% of the human race until the 19th century was poverty. Yeah. And yet they changed the world through Jesus Christ. And so I I think there's, and we, by the way, the church in Europe started at an entrepreneur's home named Lydia. So um, pretty exciting things. You have just listened to the first half of my podcast interview with Dr. Charlie Self. You will definitely want to listen next week when we finish our conversation with him. We are going more into detail about the critical mind versus the critical spirit. We're going to talk about being vocationally stable and occupationally nimble. And we're also going to talk about personal and social ethics, the false dichotomy that society puts on those two things. You'll definitely want to stay tuned. See you later. You've been listening to the True Prophet Podcast. I ask you to join our movement by subscribing to our podcast and by joining our Facebook group, True Prophet Movement. We are bringing Christian entrepreneurs together to grow in true profit. God bless.